0: Welcome back to the Black Letter podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business, and I think we've done it. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset that was originally used in the Gutenberg press. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. Everything else was printed in regular type. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify black letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. Hi, this is Tom Dunlap. Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. Today with me on Black Letter, I've got Ben Barlow and David Ludwig, attorneys with Dunlap, Bennett, Ludwig. And we're going to talk about non-competition agreements and enforcing them in a time of COVID. And there are a lot of things that have happened in this time period. So not only are courts closed, but when courts do open, it's for emergencies only. And it's really, it was hard before to get in front of a court To get injunctive relief to enforce a non compete, which is the main way you enforce a non compete. And it's even harder now. So, what considerations do you need? What do you need to think about as a business when you're looking at non competes, enforcing them, writing them? And then, what's even more interesting is recently in the government contract space, particularly, but in all spaces, the Department of Justice and the FTC, uh, Federal Trade Commission, both issued a joint statement saying on April 13th of 2020, particularly in light of COVID that they're going to be going after businesses that collaborate on no-poach and wage-fixing agreements with each other. Basically, if a business signs an agreement with another business to say, I won't take your people, you won't take mine, that you could be pursued criminally. There's a little bit more to it, but it's something to be aware of. Without further ado, I'm going to welcome Ben and David, two attorneys who have litigated for many, many wise years, as you can tell from their wise COVID-grown beards many non-compete issues, not only drafted non-competes, but also many disputes. Ben, I'll ask you first. So let's just start very broadly. What are the, the issues, particularly during this COVID crisis, with enforcing a non-competition agreement that you have with employees?
1: I even think uh, maybe to even take one step back, I don't know. I'm sure your listeners are familiar with non-competes. One of our offices is in Virginia. And so to take a step back and just sort of use Virginia as a microcosm of how non-competes are treated generally, non-compete is a restrictive covenant that is in an employment contract or any contract that you might sign. And a, a restrictive covenant is some clause that is restricting one of the parties, since the name restrictive covenant, for doing something that they would otherwise be able to do. When we talk about non-competes, it's usually the thing people have seen, the, the boilerplate that a lot of times they ignore in an employment agreement that says that, that after you leave your period of employment for us, that you can't go work for someone else, or that you can't, you can't solicit some of our, our clients or customers, or you can't do something. And Generally, those are what are referred to as restraints in trade. It's something that prevents somebody from engaging in their, their business or trade. And in Virginia and most other jurisdictions, restraints in trade are looked at very unfavorably. They're generally non-enforceable unless, and here's where our whole episode comes on today, unless they, they further a legitimate business interest that someone has. That becomes a little bit difficult in, a, in terms of COVID, but it's difficult in general when you look at uh, what legitimate interest somebody might have.
0: I mean, just think about the phrase you said. And I know it's in every case in every state. I know it's in New York law, Maryland law, DC law, Virginia law. They all say that the touchstone of a non compete has to be that it's got to protect a legitimate interest of the employer who's asking for it. But that's such a broad subjective statement. Like I may think it's in my legitimate interest to not have you work for anyone ever again. But that probably isn't in in the broad sense, looking from the employee's perspective or from other businesses or from any rational third party, that's not really reasonable. How do we define legitimate interest of the employer? How does that, generally speaking, whether it's Virginia or New York or California, what's the rough idea behind that? How does that work? And and David or Bran, if you guys, either of you want to jump in on that.
1: There are a couple of things that come in when you look at cases. I mean, what we look at to determine what's legitimate or what's reasonable in terms of any business uh, are cases from where something has gone wrong. And Where someone has done something that, they, that an employer didn't like or, or wasn't supposed to, there are a couple of great examples that firms dealt with recently that have really hinged on what's legitimate. So some key factors you're going to look at in terms of a restrictive covenant are generally those clauses that say what you can do or can't do after you left employment. They'll talk about a time period for which you're restricted from doing something. They'll talk about a geographic area that applies, that you, you can't do X and Y area. And then they'll talk about the types of things that you're prevented from doing. And all three of those things are sort of customs when it comes to furthering a legitimate business interest. So if a business, say, is, is making widgets and only sells widgets within a 20-mile radius of their small town, then it would, be, it would not be a legitimate interest for them to put in a restrictive covenant with an employee that after you leave here, you can't sell widgets anywhere in the country because there's not sort of a reasonable interest that they have in restricting uh, someone from doing that kind of work in an area. That one of the phrases that's used a lot uh, in Virginia and in case law is called the janitor's house when it's talking about what somebody can do. And it says, if someone has a restrictive covenant, that prevents all of their employees from serving as a janitor for anybody else, whether it's a competing business or not for a period of time after they leave employment, that's probably not a legitimate business interest. So you need to look at the the duties that an employee has working for you, and then the duties that you're trying to restrict them from doing from, from a future employer. And whether you really have an interest in protecting sort of your area of competition David's probably written a lot of these and he might have some ideas about some things that you could put in to further that interest.
0: So David, uh, let me ask you then. So so case law, and again, I'll just reiterate kind of nationally, every state, all the circuits, it's got to be legitimate protection of the employer. That's the top thing. Every state, there has to be reasonable time restriction, reasonable territorial limit. It can't be too harsh or oppressive to the employee. And I know there's this kind of sometimes we say it's a throwaway one, but it can't be contrary to public policy. And I think uniquely, maybe in non-competes, that's one of the things that is more important in this context than the public policy argument might be in others, because you need this other perspective. like From a public policy perspective, stopping a janitor from working, there's no good public policy reason to do that. And there probably isn't a legitimate business interest to stop somebody from doing that. But if somebody is one of three people, a subject matter expert, and they're within a five mile radius where an industry is located, that's going to be a different, different calculus. David, what, what are your kind of thoughts on on this subject here?
2: I think what all of these categories tell us and what the case law reflects, you know, things like reasonableness, public policy, undue burden, these are all very subjective and fact specific inquiries. And it really comes down to the specific situation that you're dealing with in any given case. And that's where the COVID crisis might tweak some of the case law at the margins. When we talk about public policy and enforceability of a a non-compete, generally, the case law was sort of settled. But now, what happens if the person subject to the non-compete is working on an important uh, vaccine or happens to be an essential worker that's in great need? Would that affect the enforceability under this particular time uh, or undue burden on the employee? What if there happens to be a 30% decrease in a certain market sector of available jobs? Is it now more unduly burdensome to that employee to be subject to this non-compete? And would the courts be a little more lenient if jobs are just less plentiful to begin with in that geographic area? So the facts of what's going on in the world can have a bearing on these. Oh,
0: that's interesting. You made me think. So, David, let me ask. Something like a cruise line. I'm a cruise ship captain and I have a non-compete, I work for Carnival, and I can't go work for uh, Viking, right? Because that's a competing cruise line. But now you're saying, because of COVID, nobody's cruising. And if I get laid off, and I have a non-compete at Carnival, it's possible that as a public policy matter, the court's going to say, you can go work for Viking if you can get a job there, because this industry's closed. I mean, there's no legitimate business interest any longer. If they're la- and I think that's another interesting thing. If somebody lays you off, can you enforce a non-compete against somebody who the company has laid off? They've said, we don't need you anymore. Do they have any legitimate business interest to say, but you can't compete even though we don't need you? To me, it feels like, and again, this isn't my field, so I defer to you, but to me, it feels like that's something that would be very hard to do if you're firing somebody, you're laying them off.
2: Through New York law, I know that uh, layoffs are, are not, uh, non-compete will not be enforced in the context of a layoff.
1: I think Virginia is a little more nuanced. Is that right, Ben? Yeah, it is, and we uh, a lot of times uh, something's written directly into a non-compete in Virginia to deal with that. So uh, three weeks ago, we had a situation with a non-compete in the firm, uh, a sector where non-competes are, are really common. The financial financial planning sector, that uh, non it's rife with non-competes because your your sort of your key area of business is your client lists, and so you don't want an investment advisor when they leave to take and solicit customers that they've developed while they were with you. But in this particular non-compete, the language was in there that the non-compete was, was not going to apply it unless there was a, somebody resigned or there was a termination uh, for calls, that the non-compete wouldn't apply if there was a termination for anything but calls. So, so our guy who came to the office after um, probably a little bit later than he should have to dis- discuss his non-compete He had resigned. And so his non-compete applied. But if he had stayed at work and been terminated without cause, the business didn't have grounds to terminate him for cause. So if he had been terminated without cause, his non-compete wouldn't have applied at all. And he wouldn't have had an issue come up. It's one of the key areas that there are two. When you're talking about non- competes, you're really the two areas that you're focused on. uh, At our firm, we're we're fortunate enough to deal with both sides and, and really know the subject matter pretty well, but you're dealing with the non-competes from an employer's perspective and non-competes from an employee's perspective. And so it sounds of-
0: like, Ben, the earlier you talk to your attorney from a strategic standpoint, the more or less enforceable a non-competes going to be. I mean, that very specific instance, the employer on the other side probably said, look, if you can get that guy to resign, you can enforce that non compete but if you fire him, you know, you're know you going to be stuck with him being able to compete and take those client lists potentially.
1: A- absolutely. Sometimes you're talking about maybe waiting a few days. You're dealing with employees who are usually really frustrated at their job and they want to get out, that the situation's bad. But sometimes you're talking about the difference in waiting a couple of days and being wow. terminated without calls wow. to save you hundreds of thousands of dollars back in. Well, so let me
0: talk about then, enforcement in these days of COVID. So I know, you know, doing litigation more in the IP space, but I know that it's the same space, civil courts, federal courts, state courts, and they are backed up. I think New York federal court in Manhattan, Southern district of New York, I think the earliest trial that you're getting is like two years away. How is it if you need to get injunctive relief, which is usually an emergency thing, they're working for a competitor, they've got your secrets, maybe they have your secrets, maybe they don't but what things do you need to think about before you decide to enforce? I mean, to me, it seems like you've got to have a really good case. I mean, you always want to have a good case, but this isn't the day and age where you can bully somebody and you wave an eye and compete at them. You need to have a really good case or you're just wasting money. That's what it seems like.
1: Well, we just had this situation, like I said, same same situation three weeks ago in in the Fairfax courts and uh. I don't know where people are watching the podcast at, but that's uh, Fairfax, Virginia, Northern Virginia, really wealthy county. Three things the employer scheduled an emergency hearing for an injunction in this, uh, in this same deal where the person came to us with this non-compete. The three factors that are really key there are an employer needs to be able to show that they're going to win on the merits, probably going to win on the merits of the arguments. You need to tell a court, hey, we have a slam up case. Two, the employer needs to be able to show that there's irreparable harm that's going to happen. That's that's the key factor. Is the harm that is being done to you irreparable, that it can't wait for a regular hearing to happen? And then third is, are there any other damages that will sort of satisfy you? Is this something where you could be paid off down the road and it would address your damage or is your damage really of a different nature? Now, Fairfax, they scheduled a hearing for, they were going to schedule it a week out. Because this is one of the small case, classes of cases that seem to be getting pushed through, because the whole theory behind this is that if you have a need for, a, for a, a temporary injunction or a permanent injunction and you're claiming that there's irreparable harm, well, then the courts understand, even though there's the backup on everything else, the courts understand that there's some need to address this either telephonically or in person Fairfax, we were going to have the ability to do either, but things are opening up enough now where the court was willing to say that if this is a true emergency, we'll go ahead and schedule a hearing in a week to try to deal with it. We didn't need that hearing. The, the matter settled before before that hearing was necessary in our client's best interest and in the employers too, but we would have gotten that injunction because, of, but you really want, if you're an employer, you want to focus on the, the merits of your case that right. you really do, Don't have weaknesses in your argument. And two, this whole concept of irreparable harm, that that the longer this goes on, your business is being damaged in ways that you can't address monetarily down the road.
0: Okay, great. So that's good. So so David, let me ask you from the employer side, if I'm an employer, my employee has just resigned. So I've got potentially an enforceable uh, non-compete with that employee. And they haven't taken any secrets. I'm just giving you a, a what if necessarily, they don't have a client list, but they're going to a competitor of mine and my non-competition agreement that they have signed as part of employment would, I think, restrict them from working there. It's a 50-mile, you know, one-year non-compete, but it's COVID-19. Do I go for injunctive relief? Do I try to enforce it? Like, What would be your take on that case?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's so many legitimate business interests that go beyond customer lists. I mean, just if it's a high highly placed individual, just their person in the relevant business community, their relationships with other companies and, uh, and with cu- customers and stuff like that, people might travel with them. Like there's a likelihood that they would, and that, that was the purpose of the non-compete. That's why the employer put it in place in, in the beginning. I think Ben's tale um, and the situation with the courts really puts a increased emphasis on early action in these particular times because if you don't jump in and get that quick injunction, you, you don't really have much of a case left. Normally, you know, if you've got a one-year non-compete, maybe you could get your case to trial in eight or nine months and get a resolution even if you don't go for the injunction. But now, everything except the injunction is going to be backburnered so long, oh, gotcha. that the year's going to be passed. It'll be two years down the road before you get a trial. And then what's left? The non-compete's already expired. The case is essentially moot. There may still be a damages claim, of course, but um, I think really the the whole game now is, is in that injunction here and given the timing and the backlog of the core system.
0: That's So basically, it comes down to if you can meet the standards for injunctive relief, you should pursue your non-compete. If you can't meet those standards, it's almost a waste of money. And just to refresh, injunctive relief, the same in every civil case, you've got a likelihood of success on the merits, black welder furniture, that case has been replaced. I think it's the real truth about Obama. It is the in the new federal, standard. yeah. But it's those three standards. So there's no remedy at law. You can't get money damages. Ben said this. Irreparable harm's going to happen. And it's more likely than not that you're going to prevail. Those are the three big ones. And then there's, of course, public policy. Mm-hmm. I think Justice Scalia said in a Supreme Court case, we had, you and I had in front of him, he said, P- don't throw public policy at me. That's the last thing I want to hear. <laughs> but, uh, but that said, it is the fourth factor. One other interesting thing I want to I bring to everyone's attention is this recent ruling not ruling, sorry, joint statement by the Department of Justice and the FTC that um, they're going to, in light of COVID-19, they're going to seek stronger enforcement of the criminal statutes, the antitrust criminal statutes, where companies may be horizontally collaborating with each other in no-poach agreements. Basically, this is when one company says to another company, hey, I'm X big company and you're Y big company and we own this market. Don't take my people. I won't take your people. Um, or don't pay these people more than this so the wage rates don't drive up. So, so the statement was, we're going to go after those people more aggressively during COVID-19. Why is that? What's, what's the impetus behind that? What should companies, I mean, obviously don't enter into wage fixing and no poach agreements with other companies, but you know. Where's the slippery slope there with things like non-compete agreements with employees and things like that?
1: I think that's going to be that would be the uh, the bane of Justice Scalia's existence if you uh, if if he were around today hearing about it because um
0: public policy
1: because yeah it's it's all public policy we would right. be saying and I think David raised this earlier I think you could be talking about both the health services sector I think this could apply to almost any sector health services sector financial sector or the the defense industrial sector, where you're basically saying that if your two companies, if, if uh, Lockheed and Grumman or Lockheed and Boeing are working in the defense sector and you're, you're colluding to have sort of, sort of no-poach agreements and you're affecting people's ability to go and freely uh, move around or you're doing things like that, then it could impair the national interest in defense. Um, if you have two companies that are are in the vaccine sector,
0: but we we're not saying that Lockheed and Boeing are doing
1: that. No, 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 no. Not saying, saying here, that they would, they would, would ever do that. that.
0: They are not. We're, this is an example.
1: This is an example uh, for any viewers at Lockheed or Boeing. The the
0: Lockheed. Yeah, yeah.
1: But in the financial services sector, I think when you're talking about huge programs like PPP loans or. Uh, you're doing anything like that, that if, if the public policy, if, you're, if we're saying that public policy is that funds and program like that be as quickly and efficiently distributed as possible, yeah. companies are taking some action between themselves that really tries to further their individual business interest rather than the overarching interest of the program, that, that public policy says don't do that. And then when you get into the area of potential vaccines and the pharmaceutical industry, yeah, the, the public policy there is, is pretty clear that we, we want vaccines, we want, uh, we want therapeutics to be developed as quickly as possible, a ton of federal funding is going into those programs. You really shouldn't be taking any action to, uh, to just purely focus on your own business interests if, if you're working on this, this huge public program.
0: Gotcha. Okay, so if I want to sum everything up, so from an employer perspective, First, and from an employee perspective, maybe from both perspectives, I don't know if you could do this, but what are the three, if we could just say there are just three things you should remember about non competes in COVID? What are those three big highlight things, like, the three takeaways? I walk away from here. I want to remember X, Y, and Z.
1: I'll let David take a crack at the three first.
0: <laughs> or take, David, why don't you take a crack at the biggest number one for you? And Ben, you do the biggest number one for you. And then maybe that we can agree uh-huh. on
2: number three. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, the biggest one is that we don't know what we don't know, and we don't know what the courts will do with this new state of facts. So it's we can't really necessarily rely on some of the old court judgments and decisions that have come before, because the situation is rapidly evolving, and this is such a fact-specific inquiry that it could change the outcome of some cases. So uh, don't necessarily rely on the outcome that your lawyer told you would be the case a year or two years ago, because it's it's changing so fast.
0: Gotcha. So I'm going to summarize your statement into an easy takeaway for listeners. So when it comes to non-competes and our historical experience, the past is prologue. Remember that it's a new day and new age, and you have to evaluate the non-competes in the context of our current circumstances, including COVID-19. I think that's what you said. So that's the big number one. And I think that's a good theme for COVID non-compete day at Black Letter Podcast. Ben, what's your big number one, or if that was your big number one, what's your number two?
1: I would say you really need to have legal help with this. Whether you're an employee, looking at that employment contract, don't be so excited about the job that you're just going to pretend that 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 restrictive covenant isn't there. Get some legal help to to see what it means and whether it's reasonable. Um, It's probably not something that you want to try to negotiate with your employer. Virginia is an at-will state, so an employer might either Either decide not to. uh, There's no penalty on on employers in Virginia for withdrawing offers of employment. And so you want to be careful at how you address that and whether it's something you really need to be thinking about. Uh, Employers really want to be thinking about about drawing those restrictive covenants narrowly wherever they are. One reason you want to talk to an attorney, if regardless of whether you're an employee or an employer, is that jurisdictions handle this issue differently. So in Virginia, if you have a restrictive covenant, That is drawn too broadly, either in terms of geography or area or duration. Well, that that whacks out the whole restrictive covenant. Courts will bounce the whole thing. But if you're in Texas, the Texas will have a savings statute that tells a court that says, you know, say that there's a restrictive covenant that says an employee can't do something for a year in a 500 mile geographic area, and courts say, well, you know, 500 miles is extreme. But if it were 100 miles, then that would be a legitimate interest. So the savings statute in Texas will let a court read that restrictive covenant as applying to the 100 miles. And uh, the key thing behind that is, is that if an employee, and employer have agreed on a restrictive covenant and, and met, come to a meeting of the minds on 500 miles, then they would have agreed on the 100 miles as well because it's within that. Um, saving statute doesn't allow a court or anybody else to read an additional restriction.
0: What you're saying is that it, you've got to be strategic. So talk to legal counsel, because not only as David's number, his statement, his first takeaway is the times modify what we do with non-competes. And it's all very contextual. And your statement is it's also very strategic. So non-competes are contextual in this day and age with COVID. And non-competes are always very strategic, whether it's COVID-19 or before or after COVID-19. You've got to understand that every state has slightly different laws, way they read non-competes, and you can be very strategic about them and do these the right way, whether you're an employee or an employer, to manage getting out of a non-compete, getting it, creating non-competes for your employees, either one. So the two big things are context and strategy. And so I think the third thing that, that I would add, hearing from you guys, Just combining what you've said, the big common sense, and it's almost sometimes that gets left out of legal arguments. But if you have an employee, I think, in my view, from hearing from you guys, if they haven't taken a lot and there's not a lot of value, don't enforce a non-compete simply because you have the right. Use common sense. You're probably going to spend more money in legal fees than you're ever going to get in business value. If that's not the case, and you're gonna the business value calculus is higher. Apply common sense. So apply context, strategy, and common sense to the enforcement of non-competes in the time of COVID. I think that's what we've got. I think it'll be interesting to see what employers say when we ask them questions about how they think about non-competes right now and what their current knowledge is. And we're going to do that on this episode next. And let's see what they say. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, David, for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for joining us for another exciting telecommuting, although David and I are both in the office, but uh, socially distanced telecommuted policy that we have here a Black Letter podcast. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play so you never miss an episode. And to catch us on video, check out our website at blackletterstudios.com.